0: W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. I'm getting to the point where I don't know where I am or what's going on anymore. So we better spend some time in prayer. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Give you the opportunity to use First 1 John 1, nine If necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this time to be refreshed by Your Word. As we'll study this evening, Your Word is alive and powerful. It is the written expression of your thinking and it is the guide and direction for our lives. It teaches us about you and also about all creation. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that the challenge that's laid before us will be one we will take seriously and that God, the Holy Spirit, will make these things clear to each of us as they apply to our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 4, and I want to go back to a couple of verses that we got to at the end last time. Before we do that, I'm so always so focused on the lesson, I tend to skip announcements that are right in front of me. There is going to be a brunch on New Year's Day, if you didn't read the announcements up on the screen following the morning worship service and if you would like to help provide food then see and write about that and then there is also an email out in the foyer looks something like this I would read this to you but it got printed in such fine type that I'm not even sure I can read it so it's from Tim Lipsy and it's actually a forward Of a mail from an email from a friend of his dealing with problems that missionaries are facing in Brazil. So you might want to uh, pick up a copy of that that you can read when you get home. I think that's it. Make sure your cell phones are off. I just turned mine off. All right, Hebrews chapter 4. I want to go back to pick up the last couple of verses last time. The focus of chapter 4, 1 through 10 is one focus, and that is a challenge that begins in verse 1 with a conclusion. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of. And there's a challenge there that we need to take this very seriously, that there is a yet future rest that is distinct from the promised land rest that, we, that was mentioned earlier, that is the point of the analogy. So the focus of the passage we saw last time is on rest, and there are three different rests mentioned. The first is creation rest, which has to do with the seventh day rest after the Lord created the heavens and the earth then we have the second rest which is the promised land rest and the picture will be coming up in a minute let me make sure we're going to have an image over there There we go. Promised land rest. The analogy, the foundation of this analogy is important to understand. You have God working for six days and then He ceases His work. That's the main idea of rest, is to cease the labor. Now, the labor of those first six days is a good labor. We have such a knee-jerk reaction whenever we see the word works in the Scripture to ascribe it to human good, man's attempt to try to do things that, that please God or gain approval with God. But the term works itself is a neutral term. You have to pick up its meaning from the context. So there are there's work that is good because it's done uh, in obedience to God. It's done under the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and it produces divine good. We use that term to distinguish it from human good, and that is the morality, the religious works, the efforts that are simply produced in our life through our own sin nature. The sin nature not only produces those acts we think of as sin, but also produces uh, morality, anything that we think of that's good, but it's done apart from dependence upon God. So we have to look at that context. So God works for six days, ceases His work, on the seventh it doesn 't have the idea with God of rest from labor as if he were tired or weary then there 's promised land rest that God promised Israel. This is the foundation that is based on the sabbatical the Sabbath rest of God during the creation week so israel israel 's entry into the promised land is built on an analogy to the creation rest. So they've been in slavery, they've gone through the wilderness, and then finally they come into the land of opportunity, the land of prosperity, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, where they can rest from this labor that's gone on before. That doesn't mean that there wouldn't be responsibility after that any more than God's rest, its cessation from the labor of the first six days of creation meant that God stopped doing anything. Or he stopped uh, taking care of his creation. And then the third category of rest that's introduced in this passage is millennial rest. That you have the ages culminating in a period, a perfect environment in the millennial kingdom that's described as the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of God, the period of his rest. And that is what we are moving toward, that is yet future. Verse 1 clearly indicates, and I pointed out several other parts of this passage that indicate the future orientation of the passage to this rest that's in the future. We would connect it back to verse 5 of chapter 2, which says that he has not put the world to come of which we speak. So the whole orientation of this passage went through from 2 5 down through 3 6, which is the didactic section, sets the stage of an orientation to the future, an orientation to that world to come. The rest, the his rest that's spoken of in chapter four, is anticipates or is is the focus of or fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. We haven't entered it yet. That is why there are these warnings to in verse one to to be afraid let us fear or we could translate that third person uh, third person imperative we should fear the same way when we come to 4.11 that idea is picked up again let us be diligent to enter that rest so the rest is viewed as something future now what's important here is identifying that concept of rest because as I went through various commentaries, various discussions on this passage and the meaning, what you will typically find is that people will, or theologians, will identify that rest as heaven, as simply entering into heaven, being face to face with the Lord. But you have serious problems with this passage if the rest is heaven or just being face to face with the Lord. Because then when you come to verse 11, you have a mandate be diligent to enter that rest. And the idea of, of the passage is that entering the rest is contingent upon being diligent. Well, that's a would be a work salvation if entering the rest is equivalent to the idea of entering into heaven or being face-to-face with the Lord. So we have to be very careful with these terms. And that's often what you find, and that's how you'll typically uh, find that lordship salvation people interpret Hebrews is they will go to this passage and say, See, entering the rest is contingent upon being diligent. And being diligent is the normal fruit of, being, uh, of truly being saved. So if you're not diligent, you weren't truly saved. The Arminian position, which argues that you can lose the salvation you once have, would say, See, if you're not continuously diligent, then you lose your salvation. The hyper-Calvinist position the 5 point lordship perseverance position remember uh, calvinism is built on a 5 point acronym tulip tulip is, so you have to learn your flowers if you're going to be a theologian tulip is total depravity unconditional election limited atonement irresistible grace and the perseverance Of the saints. What they mean by perseverance of the saints is that the person who is truly saved will persevere, though they'll sin, they may sin grievously, they will still, they won't ultimately deny Christ, they won't fall into permanent sin, they will always recover because they're always going to advance and persevere to the end of their life. That's lordship salvation. It's a backdoor work system because you know you're saved not by Faith plus works at the beginning of your Christian life, but the works demonstrate that the faith was real. Therefore, if you don't have, what they'll say is if you don't have faith that are, um, works that are consistent with your profession of faith, then you have a false faith. You have a non genuine or a non saving faith. It wasn't a real faith, it was a false faith. So, it's a very subtle system that is dominant across the country. You'll hear it leak in to all kinds of different people. If you listen to folks on the radio, or you listen to, or you read uh, any books on, on, on the Bible, biblical exposition, you'll often run into that. And you find people say that in everyday conversation. You'll be talking to somebody and they'll say, well, I just don't know how so-and-so could be a Christian. Look at what they did. See the hidden assumption there is that if you're really saved, if you had real genuine faith, then you wouldn't do that. But since you did that, whatever that is, then you must not have had real genuine saving faith. So it's a it's a subtle works it's a backdoor works a backdoor introduction of works into the system. So it's very important to identify this concept of rest. It also helps us just to unpack the meaning of the Scripture. Now, let's go back to verse 9 a minute, because I want to redo some of my closing exegesis last week in verse 10. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of... Let's go back to verse verse 8. What do I have here? Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, the them refers to the the Exodus generation and then in this passage with Joshua the conquest generation. So you have this analogy between the Exodus generation and the present generation, which is which undergirds this whole section. The Exodus generation failed to mix faith with promises. They failed to mix Faith with God's promise and so they didn't enter into the promised land and they didn't experience the rest of God. They were still justified. They were still individual believers who failed to realize the promises, the blessing, the future inheritance that God had for them. They jeopardized it by their lack of faith and it eventually culminated in such serious divine discipline that they lost the opportunity to experience what the inheritance that God had promised them so the analogy the writer of Hebrews is saying is we who believe or who have believed have that same potential to enter into rest that is to enjoy at a fuller degree the reign of Christ during the millennial uh, millennial kingdom to rule and reign with him Yet, we can fail to appropriate that and to fully realize those millennial blessings and responsibilities by failing to believe the promises of God in advance in our spiritual life. And then the writer, in the thrust of his argument, is showing that the rest that all of this pictures in the future, the rest that all this pictures in the future is... For the people of God. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. And then we have a an interesting verse in construction in verse ten. Verse 10 reads, For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Now this verse begins with a somewhat ambiguous Greek construction. I remember when I first went to seminary and started studying Greek, I figured, well, this is going to solve all the problems. And somehow folks get that idea that if I could just learn the original languages, then some of these things that come up when I read the Bible just be solved because I could read it in the original. Well, in some sense, some things are resolved. There's clarity. As you, just if you read anything that's written and if you read it in the original language, you get a clearer understanding of what the author is saying. But no language is perfect, and all languages have a certain amount of ambiguity in the way they express things. And so, as we used to say, yes, knowing Greek and Hebrew solves some problems. But then it opens up a whole new uh, area of problems that you have to deal with. And just because uh, you can read the Greek and the Hebrew doesn't mean it resolves everything. Well, there's an uh, uh, an ambiguous phrase at the beginning of 410, And I went back and I rethought this thing again last week. And so I want to change my interpretation of the passage from the end of last, last week. 4.10 says, For he who has entered his rest... And who's the he here? That's what's important to identify. And it's difficult because there's no specific third person singular pronoun in the original. What you have at the beginning of this verse is an articular aorist active participle of ace ercomi. Now the article with a participle means it's going to be handled like a noun. Just basic rule of grammar a participle is called a a verbal adjective. that means sometimes it's going to act like a verb running that I that's how we form participles in English usually is with an ing so sometimes it's going to act like a verb and sometimes it's going to act like a like an adjective or a noun. When, it has, when it's going to function like an adjective or noun, it has the article with it. It's real easy to identify at that point. After that, it gets somewhat confusing. In certain authors of Scripture, for example, in uh, the Gospel of John, John uses an articular, present, or an articular participle like a noun. And that's where people get really confused because he'll talk about he who believes, and and people want to take that as a it's a present participle. So they'll the lordship crowd again. Lordship crowd comes along and says, see, present is durative action. He who continues to believe. But if you understand John and how he uses grammar, he's using that as just a, as just a noun, the believer, and that's the best way to translate it. It's just. The believer, it's not he who believes, it's not emphasizing ongoing action. He is just using the participle as a noun. And so you just translate the believer and it avoids all those uh, weird interpretations that lordship, salvation advocates come up with. Okay, so this verse begins with that same kind of construction. But it's an aorist participle here. And the general rule of grammar is that a, an aorist participle, because it's, it's past tense, uh, doesn't have a time element in, in, when it's a participle, but an aorist participle is going to precede the action of the main verb. Well, here's where you get into some interesting stuff, because the main verb is katapao, and it's an aorist active indicative. Now, when you get into this, the thing you have to decide is, is the, who is the he? Is that he who has entered as I pointed out last time, I thought it was floated the interpretation that it was the Lord Jesus Christ because he has entered his rest made a fundamental error there see this is the problem that moving brings you just get distracted with all the cares of life you ever run into that He who has entered his rest, and I was thinking rest the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of of um, his ascension, and that just that that doesn't fit with anything in the passage. He who has entered his rest. So the first thing to deal with was what's the who does the he refer to? Does it refer to the Lord Jesus Christ, or does it refer to some individual? And in the past tense is what can throw you off. The first problem is that you, that you have to avoid is identifying this as something that has already happened. The past tenses here indicate that it's something that at first glance indicates something that's already happened. But this would then necessitate understanding the concept of rest in this verse as equivalent to entering heaven or being face to face with the Lord. Because you see the past tense, he who has already entered his rest has himself also ceased. If that's talking about something that has already been completed in the past, it's talking about somebody who's already done this. So therefore, the rest would have to be understood as entering into heaven. Well, we've already realized through our study of the passage that rest can't mean entering into heaven. So the past tense here is not to be understood as something that's already actually actually occurred. So we must conclude that if rest is equivalent to being face-to-face with the Lord or entering heaven then entering heaven would be would be equivalent to or or would be dependent upon works because that's where we go in, in the next verse. So the next option is to see if there's another meaning for the aorist here, and this is what's called a proleptic use of the aorist. How's that for a nice big fancy word? See, expand your vocabulary a little bit. Proleptic means that you use a past tense to refer to something that hasn't happened yet. So it's referring to something that's in the future. And it could be similar to just a general, uh, what what grammarians call a gnomic use, which means it's just a, a general principle that's being articulated. And that's how we should understand this, that it's not talking about someone who has already entered his rest and has already ceased from works, but it's stating a principle that the person, anyone, which would be a better translation, for anyone who has entered his, his rest, God's rest, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So that is a grammatical possibility. And when we plug in a synonym for rest, it opens the passage up. His rest refers to what? The future millennial kingdom, the messianic reign of Christ. So let's just do a little simple word substitution. And instead of using the term his rest, Let's substitute millennial kingdom. So the principle then is explained to be, For he who has entered the millennial kingdom has himself also ceased from his work, as God did from his. See how that, makes, that opens it up. It, it, it makes it understandable as a, as a gnomic principle. That is, that the rest is yet future, and at the point in which anyone enters that millennial kingdom, which is a place of rest, there is a cessation of the current works. Now that's why we have to identify works in this passage as the next element of interpretation is that works here doesn't refer to attempts to... Uh, gain God's approval it's not human good here it is simply Christian service it's living the Christian life it's the labor of living in the angelic conflict and that is work if you haven't realized that in your own Christian experience then something's wrong somewhere or I'm making some real mistakes sometimes I think I live in in the vortex of the angelic conflict I was talking to George Meisinger yesterday and George said that he thinks demons inhabit all the computers of all the pastors he knows And he may be right. For he who has entered the millennial kingdom has also ceased. See, you enter first logically, and then there's a recognition of ceasing afterwards. And that's the logical construction of the passage. And then there's the comparison, as God did from his. When did God cease from his labor? At the end of the creation week. So that's the foundational analogy to to all of this rest imagery in chapter 4. As God labored for six days, ceased His labor, and enjoyed the results of it afterward. In the same way the believer lives out his Christian life, striving to please God by studying the word, confession of sin, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, growing, applying the word, all of this, Christian service, the duties of our priesthood, the responsibilities of our ambassadorship, all of this ties together. And it's work. And it's not, it's not human good. It's divine good when we're walking by means of the Spirit. But it is labor in this age. But then when the millennial kingdom comes, we enter that rest of God, the millennial kingdom, and we have ceased from our labors. It will no longer be laborious. Remember that laborious aspect entered in as a result of the fall. So verse 10 concludes with this general principle that the person who enters his rest, enters a kingdom, Has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Then we draw a conclusion. Verse 11, and this is where the strong knockout punch comes for many of us. Let us therefore, the therefore tells us that this is a conclusion from the ten verses previous which began with a warning to be afraid, to be fearful, to to, to be seriously concerned about our destiny. And then it's reiterated in verse 11, Therefore, because of all this, because a rest remains, because there's this future potential, let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So there's a real analogy here that we can by not believing God, by not trusting in His promises, by not advancing in the Christian life, that we can lose this potential rest. The word translated be diligent is the Greek verb spudazo. It is the aorist active subjunctive, which has, in this case, an imperative meaning. There's different ways you can express an imperative or a mandate in the Hebrew. And it's a, a... First-person singular. Now, we don't really have a first-person singular imperative in English. So, normally it's translated, let us be diligent. It is, In that sense, it's called a hortatory subjunctive in the Greek, which merely means that, that it's a challenge to all of us, the writer included, to all of us to be diligent. The writer doesn't see himself as having already arrived. I like to translate it. It's, the grammarians don't think this is always accurate, but I think it carries the punch for, for English speakers a lot better. If we translate it, we should therefore be diligent. There's a mandate here. It's not, there's not a sense of, um, of a back door, back door out of this. Let us be diligent doesn't sound quite as strong as we must be diligent. And it's that imperatival sense. We must be diligent to enter that rest. And the word translated diligent means hardworking, industrious, attentive to detail, constant in our uh, work, our striving to grow, to advance, to mature in the Christian life. Hard driving. It is a strong word. It's the same word that's translated. It's not a great translation though. Translated over in 2nd Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God. The word that's translated study is spedonzo. It means to be diligent, to, be, uh, to, to put a tremendous effort into, and the context shows that it's the study of the Word. So we are all challenged by this verse. We must be diligent to enter that rest there is a condition stated here that if we want to experience all that God has for us in that potential to rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom then we have to be diligent about the Christian life that means that the study of God's word and walking by the holy spirit must have the highest priority this isn't uh, some game sometimes we and we've all done this we we take grace for granted we have done that as spiritually immature believers. We just take grace for granted. We know, well, Lord, I know that if I get do this or do that, I'll just confess my sin and I'll be right back in fellowship. But there are consequences to those acts of disobedience. And that's what this passage has, has really emphasized. That with the Jews going through the wilderness, there were ten times that they were disobedient to God. Ten times that they complained. And they could say, "Well, we can we can get God's forgiveness." And even at, after Kadesh Barnea, when God said, "Okay, that's it. I've had it. You've just murmured and complained, and you gripe enough. You're not going into the land," God still forgave them. Forgiveness isn't the same as remove, as removing consequences. We get all confused about that in, in American culture. Just because somebody's forgiven doesn't mean the consequences don't continue. Now sometimes, and frequently, God in His grace, when He forgives us, He also removes the consequences. But there are many times when God forgives us and the consequences remain. When David committed his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, then conspired to have Uriah killed, and then covered it up, there was... Forgiveness, but there were still divine discipline consequences. There were the natural consequences that came from that kind of action, as well as the, as well as long term. In fact, I was thinking about this the other day when I taught it in my uh, class at the college, and I realized, and I, I'd looked at this years ago, but I don't think I really put this connection together that one of the consequences of that fourfold discipline that's brought on David as a result of his sin with Bathsheba is the is the Absalom rebellion that's the fourth of the the four uh series of disciplines that he has to go through when Absalom rebelled against David and David had to flee the city and and he took his advisors with him the man that became Absalom's right-hand counselor was a a man named Ahithophel who was one of David's mighty men. Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. Now that doesn't that tell you something about the family dynamics that happened as a result of that, that affair with Bathsheba and killing Uriah? Because here is Bathsheba's grandfather, Bathsheba's fleeing the city with David, yet her grandfather is so angry at what David has done in his failures of leadership that he goes over to Absalom against his own granddaughter and her husband. So that tells you that maybe that marriage between David and Bathsheba wasn't a great uh, love story or great, uh great marriage and certainly has some consequences for David in terms of the family dynamics with the in-laws. So we're challenged in verse 11, Therefore let us be diligent to enter that re- rest, which is the millennial kingdom, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So we're warned about consequences, and we're warned about judgment. Now that's important to understand. Why? Because that's the context of the next verse, which is a very well-known verse. One that many of you have heard hundreds of times, and perhaps have memorized. For the word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now we have to understand this verse in its context. The context is a warning that we have to be diligent. We have to work hard in terms of the Christian life. And I don't mean that... I mean that in the sense that we have to pay attention to it. It takes concentration. It takes focus. Because if we just slip into neutral, we're going to go right back into carnality. And we are reminded here that we need to be diligent. Why? And there's the explanation that comes with the word gar at the beginning of verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful. That's the foundation. He's going to build a case in this verse. The foundation is the Word of God is living and powerful, and then it has a function. It is sharper than any two edged sword. Now, typically, what you will hear many people do is wax eloquent on the fact that the sword mentioned here is the Machyra, the Roman short sword. But that would miss the point of the passage. We could spend a lot of time talking about the Rompia, which is the big broadsword that was more the hacking. Offensive weapon that the Roman soldier carried, or the shorter—it was about 18 to 20 inches, the 18 to 24 inches—the Machaira, which is a sharp, two-edged sword. But the focus of this analogy, the metaphor that's here, is on function, and it is a comparison that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. So the focus isn't. Let's focus on the point of comparison. Or the thing it's compared to, but let's look at what is being compared. Its sharpness, the function of a machaira, that sharp, sharp sword, as it was developed militarily down through the ages, was as an, it was a close-in fighting weapon that was designed to pierce, to stab, and to pierce the opponent. It, it had both offensive and defensive qualities, but it was primarily designed for up close action, not like the rompia that hacked but to pierce, to stab. That's the point of the analogy. If you get into all kinds of historical and military details on the machaira, they're a lot of fun, but you miss the point. The point is that the Word of God is so sharp and so that it pierces deeper. Its cutting ability is is more intense than that of the sharpest machaira that you've ever seen. That's the point, is that the Word of God has this ability to just cut your soul to the quick, just to pierce down below all the layers of uh, rationalizations and self-defense and, and, and scar tissue, whatever it may be, the callousness we build up in our Christian life. The, the Word of God has the ability just to slice like, a, like the sharpest scalpel to the core of way, where we live and where we think and to expose the human viewpoint and the sin and the garbage that's there. That's the thrust of this passage. Because that's what we have to be diligent about, is that process that Paul talks about over in Romans twelve two, of not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renovation or the overhaul of our thinking. How does that happen? Because the the study of the Word of God exposes, it cuts deep past all the layers of resistance that we set up where, we, where we're involved in arrogance and self-justification and self-deception. The Word of God slices all that away so that it exposes for us what's really going on inside of our thinking and inside of our soul. The problem that we run into is most of us don't have the real courage to take a look at that. We don't we don't like that. So that's why it takes us so long to grow and advance in the Christian life because we, we resist that continuously. That's part of our sin nature. This is the struggle that we go through in the Christian life while there's, always, while there's always a struggle between walking by the Spirit and the works of the flesh. So the verse says, For the word of God is living and powerful. And that first word, living, is the present active participle of zao, means it's, it's, it's alive. It's in the emphatic position. this is the first word in the sentence in the Greek. It would be boldface. The words of God are life to us. They are not just static words. This isn't like studying Plato or Aristotle, or it's not like reading a good history book. It's not like in reading good, uh, combative editorials dealing with your favorite uh, contemporary political issue. This is something that is alive. This is something that that has uh, the quality of producing real life in us as well. The Word of God is living and it is powerful from energis, where we get our word for energy. It's active. It's powerful. It is. It has an inherent power that is based on the fact that it's truth. That's why... Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It's the power of the Word of God. He, he prayed to the Father, sanctify them by truth, thy word is truth. It is the fact that it is true that gives it power, not because there's some inherent or mystical power to just the words of the Bible. It's not like, a, it's not like some magical incantation where if you say the right words or say it the right way, then the right thing's going to happen you have to it is because it is true because it conforms to reality that's where the power lies because it it expresses the thinking of god so the word of god is living it imparts life it is powerful and then it is sharper than any two-edged sword that's the uh, machaira. it's sharper than any two-edged sword no matter how sharp you can think of any uh, any weapon the Bible is sharper and it pierces this is the Greek word diakneomai which means to pierce or to penetrate and that's the quality that's being emphasized here in the metaphor the Bible penetrates to the core of our thinking and it just reveals all of those selfish strategies that we have that we rely on to try to make life work apart from God. That we try to find happiness and peace and stability without really totally being dependent upon God and really trusting in His promises and mixing faith with the promises of God. So, the Word of God pierces even to the division. And this is, this is the point of his analogy, that the, the Word of God is so precise in its truth then it can demonstrate the distinctiveness between things that are often thought not to be easy to divide between. Soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and the thoughts and the intentions, the motivations of the heart, that is the thinking. Not uh, The heart here doesn't have the idea of emotion, it has the idea of your thinking. It reveals and penetrates to the underlying motivations and intentions of our thinking. Now, I want to come back and talk about something in just a minute because it's important as part of this passage, but if we get distracted right now, we'll miss the thrust. The thrust of this passage is that there is a future judgment coming. To prepare for that, we have to let the Word of God fulfill its function, which is to penetrate and to pierce and to reveal what is going on in our thinking so that it can expose the human viewpoint, it can expose all the self-justifying, self-deceptive uh, rationales that we have, so that we can exchange the human viewpoint for divine viewpoint in our soul. This is what comes up in the 13th verse. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. See, that's the point of verse 12, is exposure. And that's the one thing that the sinful creature really doesn't like, is exposure. We don't want to be exposed before that piercing gaze of a holy God. That's what Isaiah experienced in Isaiah chapter 6. And when he sees God, he falls on his faith and cries out, Woe unto me, a man of unclean lips. When he comes into the presence of that uh, brilliant, exposing light of God, he he can't do anything other than to to fall on his face in worship, and he realizes how so much of his life is just permeated by sin. He has to be cleansed before he can be in the presence of God. So verse 13 reemphasizes this exposure uh, metaphor. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Why do we, are we to be diligent? because we're going to have to give account. There is accountability in the Christian life. Accountability is not a contradiction to grace. Grace means that we're not saved on the basis of our works. We don't have to gain God's approval in order to get saved. Nevertheless, in the Christian life, there are responsibilities and accountabilities and obligations if we're going to advance. And the result is going to be displayed at the judgment seat of Christ And the result of that is going to determine what we do in the messianic kingdom, the roles and responsibilities we have to rule as kings and priests. So verses 11 to 13 focus on the fact that we must be diligent. We must make this a priority. We can't just say, well, I'm tired tonight or or Bible class or football game uh, we've got Christmas coming up, or I'm just tired because I've been trying to move. We we have to keep the study of the Word of God and its application the priority. Now, there's something else that goes on inside the verse of verse 12, which is important to understand in light of how the Bible or what the Bible teaches about man and man's makeup, and that comes in this phrase: the division of soul and spirit. The word for soul is the Greek word suke, meaning soul. Sometimes it just means the life principle. Sometimes it means self. These two words, suke for soul and pneuma for spirit, are words that are not necessarily rigid technical words. By that I mean you can't go to every time you see the word pneuma, and it always refers to our concept of soul any more than you can always go to the word pneuma and say okay well here it means spirit here it means human spirit there it means Holy Spirit there's about uh, 10 or 12 different meanings for the word pneuma 1 Corinthians 2 Paul uses uh, uses at least four different ways in three different verses so you have to uh, look at the context to understand what the thrust of these words are we get so used to thinking in terms of these rigid categories Holy Spirit human spirit that when we're born we're spiritually dead we don't have a human spirit when we're regenerate we gain a human spirit that we look at passages that talk about uh, Pharaoh was troubled in his spirit how does that fit the other categories well was Pharaoh saved well you can't say if Pharaoh was saved see it, it the words have a general sense and then in some passages they have a technical sense so you In in one sense, you have to use your theology in order to clarify what the words mean in these questionable passages. So you always have to go to passages where there's something specific and clear that's stated and use that then as a principle to interpret passages where there's things may be uh, less than clear. Now we're going to get a re-education, everybody. Because almost everybody in this room has been taught wrong. Not everybody, but most of you have been taught wrong. There are two views as to the makeup of man. The first view is called dichotomy, from Greek word meaning basically two parts or two divisions. The second view is the view called trichotomy, terms that everybody here is familiar with. But this is where we're going to get re-educated. Dichotomy is two parts. And the two parts are not body and soul. I want you to get that. The two parts are not body and soul. You can look this up in any classic systematic theology, from John Calvin to Martin Luther to William G.T. Shedd to uh, Louis Burkhoff. The two parts referred to in the dichotomous position is immaterial and material. the three parts in the trichotomy position are body soul and spirit now most of you are taught that dichotomy refers to two parts body and soul trichotomy is three parts body soul and spirit that is not how that is not how any systematic theology expresses this there's two views the dichotomy view says that there are a variety of immaterial terms that are rough synonyms i.e. hard reins, mind, emotion, soul, spirit, that these terms are soul and spirit, in fact, are interchangeable in some passages. So it's better just to talk about the fact that man has a material physical body and then he has an immaterial nature that is described by various different words uh, in the Scripture. That's the classic view of dichotomy. The trichotomy position argues that The soul and the spirit are different in makeup and different in function. They're different in makeup and they're different in function. They are not synonymous. They are distinct. And that the other terms such as heart or or, uh, will, other terms such as heart, will, range, emotions, things like that, describe components of the soul now I think that's a more accurate position where, where I'm just correcting your thinking a little bit is that you have to understand that dichotomy never is used in theological literature to refer to just the body and the soul it's never used that way dichotomy is always referred to people who think that the terms uh, that the parts of the body are just the physical body And then the immaterial part that is referred to by a lot of different rough synonyms in the the scriptures. Now let's go through this and I want to show you why. I think the trichotomy position is the more accurate position. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now, if you go through the exegesis of the passage, the things of the Spirit of God is a technical term that's used from verse 9 on to refer to the content of revelation. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, back in verse 9. That, but these things have been revealed to the mind of man. So it's talking about the things that the Spirit has revealed to the mind of man, which eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard. So all the way through those verses, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, the things, which is a neuter plural, always refers to the content of Scripture. It doesn't refer to anything out there in the world. It doesn't refer to your understanding of of, us, of uh, physics. It doesn't refer to your understanding of people. It refers to the content of revelatory uh, speech, the content of the canon of Scripture. But We have this phrase, natural man. That same, that word natural man is the Greek word sukikos, and we find it in another important verse, and that's in Jude chapter 19. I mean, Jude verse 19. Jude 19. Where Jude says, these are the ones who cause divisions. Worldly minded, devoid of the spirit. He's talking about non-believer false teachers. Unbeliever false teachers. They're devoid of the Spirit. And and notice that Spirit is capitalized in the New American Standard. It's capitalized in most English translations. But you don't have capitals in your English, I mean, in in the Greek. It's all lowercase, or if it was an uncial manuscript, it's all uppercase. But they don't have an uppercase P in pneuma to indicate, well, this is the Holy Spirit here, and this is some other kind of Spirit elsewhere. So the capitalization of that S in Spirit was a theological deduction made by the translator. Now, if the translator is not a dispensationalist, and if the translator is a dichotomist, then he's going to automatically knee-jerk reaction every time you see you see, see Numa, you capitalize the and make it the Holy Spirit if you can't. But the word translated worldly minded is not kosmos, it's sukikos. Sukikos doesn't have anything to do with the world. Sukikos is a word rooted in the noun suke, meaning soul. It means a soulish person. A soulish person. And literally in the Greek it says, these are the ones who cause divisions, soulish, not having, and there's no article, not having spirit. So the word is clearly defined by an appositional phrase. Sukikos means they don't have something called spirit. They're devoid of it. They just have a soul. So if you take that concept and you take Sukikos as being absent, something called spirit, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you realize that the author in 1 Corinthians 2 is pointing out the fact that the natural or the soulish man who doesn't possess this thing called spirit can't understand anything about God. So he, in that context, he's clearly talking about some element out apart from the soul that without it you can't understand God and with it you have the potential to understand divine revelation. Now, there's where people think, well, it must be the Holy Spirit. But in 1 Corinthians 2.9, the quote is from the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 2.10-14 through 14 is an exposition of a principle grounded in the Old Testament. Now, were believers indwelt by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? No. So, whatever is said in 1 Corinthians 2.9-14 uh, reg- regarding the Spirit... Uh, and, and possession of the Spirit can't be has to be able to apply to both Old Testament saint and New Testament saint. Okay? So, you can't understand the Spirit then in verse 14 as being related to the Holy Spirit. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 2. Verse 12 says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world... See how he uses the word Spirit there in a different way? It's the thinking in that phrase. Not the thinking of the world but the Spirit who is from God. Notice how the translator capitalized Spirit there. But what we receive at the instant of salvation is a human spirit because it's talking about something that gives us the capacity to know the things freely given to us by God and it would have to be true for an Old Testament believer as well. And the Old Testament believer didn't get the Holy Spirit. He only got a human spirit. And that at regeneration, God gives us something so that we may know the things, once again, revelation, freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. That is the function of God the Holy Spirit in revelation. So this Spirit is God the Holy Spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Then the verse we were looking at earlier. But a soulish man who hasn't received this Thing called spirit yet, does not accept the things, that is, that which has been revealed by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised, pneumaticos. It's a lower case s here. It's not God the Holy Spirit that enables us to understand uh, the Scripture, it is having a human spirit. Now, God the Holy Spirit does in terms of, uh, of teaching us as part of the package we get as church-age believers. But in the Old Testament, they were able to understand the revelation of God from Genesis to Malachi. Or if you're looking at a Hebrew Bible, from Genesis to 2 Chronicles. They were able to understand God's revelation because they had become regenerate. What well, we get as an extra added Teacher, God the Holy Spirit, who guides and directs us and helps us to understand His Word in terms of illumination and and guidance through through the Scripture. So the natural man is a soulish man in contrast to the believer who becomes a pneumaticos man. He gets something quantitative at salvation, something functional that d- he didn't have before, and this is the human spirit. Now, back in Genesis 2, God warned Adam that from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So something was lost. Some capacity was lost that gave him the ability to relate to God, to understand God, so that when God came walking in the garden after they ate, what did Adam and the woman do? They ran and they hid. They couldn't relate to God anymore. Now, in regeneration, we say we're born again. To be born, something has to come into existence. It's not just uh, a, a. I don't know what. I've had this conversation with folks before who don't take the same position I do. So, what do you get? What is born? What is birthed at regeneration? Well, you just get eternal life. No, no, no. Eternal life isn't. Something has to be there to be birthed. It's not just the reception of eternal life. There is something new that's added that gives a capacity. and you, Otherwise, you don't have any real meaning to those words "sukikos" and pneumatikos over in 1 uh, Corinthians 2. I think the best way to understand it is like this. You have a human body, and then you have a soul made up of elements such as self-consciousness. You look in the mirror, you see yourself. Your dog looks in the mirror, sees another dog. bird looks in the mirror, sees another bird. But you look in the mirror, and you see yourself on a good day if you've had a cup of coffee then you have a mentality you're able to think you have a conscience you know right from wrong you have volition when Adam was created he also had a human spirit I think of it this way it's like a hand in a glove they work so closely together when a person is regenerate that you can't always distinguish between the two it's like when you put that hand in the glove what's holding the ball? the glove or the hand? well they both are but they're one, they become almost an indivisible unity but what happened it's the human spirit that allows the self consciousness to have God consciousness the mentality to think God's thoughts the conscience to have a divine value system and volition to choose for God when Adam and the woman died spiritually they lost that element they still have the function of the soul and then when they're Regenerate, they get the human spirit, which allows the parts of the soul to function as they were intended toward God. Well, Let's look at some other passages. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Something is given birth to that wasn't there before. That's what we call the human spirit. Hebrews 4.12, which is our passage, makes it clear that, that the Word of God can distinguish and make a division between soul and spirit. Now, that has to mean that at some level there is a distinction between these two things. They're not identical. Now, in some passages, the words are used interchangeably. That's where the hand and the glove uh, imagery comes to bear because they're so united in a saved person that you can talk about the spirit and you're talking about both you can talk about the soul and you're talking about both so they they do become virtually synonymous and then you have 1 Thessalonians 5.23 where Paul says now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete now if these aren't three distinct things in this passage then the statement spirit and soul and body becomes virtually meaningless. So you have these two passages, 1 Corinthians 5.23 and Hebrews 4.12, make it clear in very precise statements that there is a distinguishing characteristic between the soul and the spirit that God clearly understands. Now in other passages... They, they may seem to overlap. They're, they're so intertwined that they can be viewed as one and one word can refer to the other. And so it seems that they are synonymous. So you have to use the clear passages to interpret the unclear passages. Now what about those passages in the Old Testament that talk about like the spirit of Pharaoh or the spirit of somebody else who's unbeliever or so-and-so is troubled in his spirit. It's just where, where the word spirit just has the general connotation in many passages of just, the, uh, of just the immaterial part of man. It's not a technical use of the word spirit. The word spirit can mean wind, breath, it can refer to the soul, it can refer to the, uh, but in other passages it clearly is something that's distinct from the soul. So that's where you have to come in and use those clear passages to be able to understand the, uh, the unclear but then don't make the mistake of thinking that every time you see the word spirit of man that it's talking about what we call the human spirit because that is a theologically nuanced category that is only true in some passages, but it represents a true category. Now, I'm glad everybody's looking so confused. But we'll cover this some more as we go along. The point of the passage, though, is to warn us that we need to be diligent in our study of the Word. Because if we're not, there are serious consequences. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, thank You for this time together. We pray that You'd help us to understand these things as we study the Word. pray that You'd help us to understand that the point is not simply accumulation of knowledge, but application, preparation, that we might be ready to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes and establishes His kingdom.